Welcome to the Stone Carvers Guild podcast. Here you will meet a variety of carvers working throughout North America. Drawing on our collective experience, we seek to share knowledge about this ancient art and to do our part to ensure that stone carving will play an important role in built environments for generations to come. So whether you are an experienced carver, new to the craft, or just curious, put on your safety goggles, open up your mind, and welcome to the workshop. I'm Matt Johnson. I'm Bethany Lee. I'm Joel Penorwood. Welcome everyone to the Stone Carvers Guild podcast. So Joel, Guys. you grew up in Ohio. Yes, the Great Buckeye State, surrounded by cornfields and pride. That's right. <laughs> the pride grows tall in Ohio. <laughs> Where'd you it's go good, to college? It's a good state. The Ohio State University. So yeah, I went yeah. there for agricultural communication and so learning how to do things like produce podcasts and all, all those good stuff. And my day job, I'm a farm broadcaster, so I do agricultural news on radio and TV and all those good things. So I, it, it's very interesting. I want to ask you about that soon, but like, what did, uh, how, how did you get interested in stone carving? Yeah. So my day job is very digital communication and things like that. And so communication, stuff that you poured a lot of time into, and it has a fleeting life, as in something you do a lot of work in, maybe lasts for 24 hours, seven days until it's sort of off the docket from being relevant anymore. So I wanted to do something that works with your hands, do a lot of that. I'm in the agricultural world, so I love just being outside and dealing with the natural environment, but also the world of craftsmanship and you know growing a skill. So I came across the world of stone carving years ago and uh, got really into stone lettering in particular, and that's what I do on the side, something that where, lasts. Where did you come across stone? That That is a good question. I was into like wood carving for a little while, but then I was thinking even this is, is kind of fleeting and not as unique as this other thing I had seen. I think I had watched a small documentary about the John Stevens shop and Nick Benson and family who are mm -hmm. based over on in Rhode Island and they do stone lettering and specifically and uh, traditional style. And that beautiful craftsmanship of, of that style just stood out to me and I really wanted to learn more. And I found out it was a small world of people who had an immense amount of talent, like the Stone Carvers Guild here. And by just quickly reaching out to a couple of people, they offered their assistance, their guide, and the best advice, and this happened from multiple people, said, uh, just like carving in stone, will yourself into existence and just get out there and start doing it. So there you go. Wow. And how did you tool up? Did you did some people give you some pointers? And Yeah, I started off with the wrong tools. I started off with the wrong things. And then I dove in and bought some alor chisels and some you know tungsten carbide tip stuff. I've slowly been adding to it and, you know, get the air hammer and all those good things. So, cool. so we'll get there. That's but I love working in lettering stuff in particular, both in things like slate and then some more just natural stone from people's farms and things like that. But bringing and a do, old world traditional style to it. And do you, uh, like, do you do lettering for, like, what kind of lettering? Do you get commissions or are you just doing... You're buying eggs or something with, with your lip. <laughs> I was making a bartering joke. <laughs> Do you barter with Jeez. the stone carving? That's, that's... Do you bart lit with your stone carving, Matthew? Okay. Anyways. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> I'm today's like... guest in the podcast, right? That's what it oh, sounds like so the... far. <laughs> no. I know you want to divert attention away. From the, from the <laughs> I do. I do. Before we, before we do. <laughs> Tell me, what, do you get commissions? Is that what you do? Well, and I still do some, you know, stuff for my own learning and, and things on the side, whether it be, again, pieces in slate or marble or stuff like that. But I've been getting more and more commissions to the point where it's to the point where it's a job to have to choose, pick and choose which projects to take on and and then also maintain the the family life and the full time day job thing, too. So. There could be choices coming up down the road. We'll when cool. when do you when do you make time to carve? 
Oh, great question, Bethany. That's that's the key right there. <laughs> Early in the mornings and then late in the evenings and then on weekends. So right now. Luckily, I've got a kind of unique work schedule that also is allowing more time during the work week for more stuff like that. So Do the kids yeah, help us? No, because he's 14 months old. He's really no help at all right now. No. <laughs> no. Just, just have one. Just one. Exactly. <laughs> so <clears throat> working on the craft now, so when he can help, I'm like good enough to give him actual pointers. It's not, you know, yeah. And then he can not so quickly surpass me. Right? That's good. Yeah. So there you go. So hey, guys, who are we talking to today? Let me continue yeah. to divert the attention away from, <laughs> from me. Nick Fairplay. Just down the road. Fellow Ohioan. Sort of. I mean, kind of. Yeah. Transplanted. Like, <laughs> to me, like, Doug has been in Ohio and couldn't get out. <laughs> so before we, we go to his interview, I just have to tell you that his studio is a great place to be because we have tea every day. Oh, that's awesome. Like high tea. Like Nick is a high great tea? pastry chef. He made us, he's made us an almond tart or like a, or an almond, uh, is it a tart? Anyway, he made us this, like it was a pie that a had tort. almond tort, a tort. Yep. Maybe that's it. And then he also made custard tarts. Mm. And uh, yeah, he's a, he's a fan. Yeah. So we have tea every afternoon at three awesome. and like he bakes for us. It's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, he mentioned that Rough in the line. interview. He mentioned that, um, it was touch and go there. What he was gonna, whether he was gonna oh, go into carving mm. or pastry chef, right. chefery, whatever you call that, right. Pas- pasty chef. He's still deciding. Sounds like <laughs> no. What his work is amazing. And if you look in the show notes, you know really you can gorgeous. see some of that stuff on uh, on the website. And Bethany, you're getting a first hand look at that by working with them. And then also, it's pretty cool that we were able to record there right in person with him there. Yeah, and I don't know if I made it clear in the interview, um, maybe we did, but um, right, so I'm working with Nick for the month of August. Um, he has um, like extra projects right now, so, and his studio is on the grounds of Cleveland Quarries, um, which has a, as I understand it, they have a sandstone quarry, and then they also have a mill, and Nick frequently ends up working with them, and so, so we were recording in the, like the, the meeting room of Cleveland Quarries, which is in the building adjacent to Nick's studio. Yeah. Is it sandstone or is it limestone or sandstone? Sandstone. The quarry sandstone. is sandstone, but they wow. also, they sell limestone that is quarried elsewhere and then they cut it there. So I just have haven't had time respir- to get a good tour yet. So. Oh, do you have to wear respirators the whole time that you're there? Uh, no, it, um, only if, I think only the guys who are actually working with the sandstone when they're cutting sandstone okay. with the respirators. Yeah. Okay. It's just a nasty beast. Mm. Yeah. No, it's mostly limestone and Nick's That's studio, good. at least right now. Yeah. Limestone just gives you those special, special boogers. <laughs> <laughs> and with that. But it won't kill you. It won't kill you. So thank you, Limestone. That's good. That's good. I think there's a quote from Walter. He's like, it's just like breathing Tums. It's like, I don't know if I want to breathe Tums. Calcium carbonate. <laughs> That's what a, a doctor told. Uh, so this is, I think this has now turned into urban lore amongst stone carvers. <laughs> so whatever that is, it's like stone carver lore. Is that someone went to the doctor and they said it was just like breathing Tums or breathing a glass of milk. <laughs> so, yeah, I wouldn't want to breathe. <laughs> like it sounds things. terrible. Or, or Tums, like you're. Those sound you're deadly. In the Tums, wrong. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. Should we get into this podcast because it's really yeah. good, and I feel like we're we're, thanks, we're sort of thanks, just like thanks. the pre-show to the good <laughs> the good stuff coming. Right there, you go. Yeah, right. let's do it. Okay. How are you doing, Nick? Pretty good. I think you must be really busy. At the moment, you know, I think since the pandemic, we got very busy. Yeah. Very strange. Before the pandemic, I think maybe a couple of reasons. People not traveling, people not getting work from China, maybe Italy, because of the cost of shipping, and people spending more money on their homes. 
Yeah, it's it's strange. That's happening down here in Texas too. Yeah, it's like just. And I think that's a little bit of. I mean, I personally, I don't not the Chinese work. I've been to China and seen how good their work is, but since sort of the last administration, they've knocked China quite a bit. So people are looking more for American work. To yeah, yeah. What do you think about the Chinese work? It's been interesting to watch. Well, no, I think it's I think it's really interesting going in the factories. You can't believe how big they are. There, if you look at their okay, if you look at their Chinese work, I saw a lot of work, you know, Buddhist work for Buddhist temples. It was amazing, right? But when they came to the European work, classical work rather, they were completely lost. They didn't understand because it's not in their nature. They don't. They're not used to looking at acanthus leaves. Right. So they don't really know how to deal with them. They, you know, they can't just walk out onto the street and see them carved, um, you know, unless you're in maybe Shanghai or somewhere with a lot of right. European work. But there's, you know, but their, you know, their gravestone work, they had, you know, massive amount of work all ready to be shipped to Japan, Korea, you know, Europe, America, gravestones, just thousands of them lined up, all carved. And they just get a design and just keep knocking it out, knocking it out. And their work was, I mean, it was pretty high standard apart from, you know, classical type work, which, you know, they just didn't quite understand. Yeah, it makes sense. It's like a cuisine or music. It's yeah. just if you're not, if you, if you don't grow up with it, it's going to be a, a second language. Yeah, and I think sort of I did. I do find the Chinese on the whole they're a little um, enamored by Louis the you know the Sun King and Louis the Fourth. They love that French sort of Louis the Fourteenth, where you know more detail is better. Mm-hmm. And you just go into all these hotels in China that are dreadful, bad, <laughs> you know. Because Louis XIV is, you know, it's so feminine and, you know, overdone, and it looks fantastic if it's well done, but if it's not well done, it looks a nightmare. Yeah, a lot of the work that I've seen lately, it kind of has, it looks like, like, if you look at it just straight on, it looks good. But as soon as you move to the side of it or approach it, it's got a flatness to it that seems... Like it's it's bo- it seems like it's born out of just an unfamiliarity with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're looking at a photograph and you're copying that. And yeah, but I mean, having said that about Chinese work, I've seen bad European work and bad American work. <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually listening. Do you remember we talked on tape? I guess in 2016, I came to your studio, and oh yeah, I vaguely remember. Yeah. And so I have the advantage of having re-listened to that. And, but I thought your story about how you started at 16 and just kind of moving through that whole apprenticeship process, you know. Well, look, you, I'm like, you know that story? Yeah, I've been, I mean, I started at 16. I'm like 66, so 50 years carving now. And I think, you know, I guess... Now I'm just getting the hang of it, you know. It, it. But I think sort of when you, when I started at 16, I mean things were very different, and um, I worked in a shop where they had no pneumatics. We, I didn't use a pneumatic for till 10 years. For 10 years, mm. everything had to be by hand because there was a sort of nationwide ban on pneumatics because of carpal tunnel. And um. So no one would use them because they want the gu- and the companies wouldn't because they need because people wanted more money to use a pneumatic or the carpal tunnel, so no one would use them. So it, you know did everything by hand, which was you know pretty amazing. And then I, I think you know working in a shop, they had like about fifteen banker masons. Now as an apprentice, you know you had to um, do a bit of everything. So you had to do banker masonry, and then you had to go you know. Uh, work in the drawing office, go on site and install, and go um, to a technical college and do sort of you know uh, technical drawing. And you so you you know to give you a really good sort of um, sort of education in it. But I think that um, when I first went there, they actually didn't want me 
and I said to them, I'd work. I told Bethany the story. I'd worked for, I'd worked for three, you know, for free for six months. And so, of course, everybody loved free. So I got a job there for free, and I knew I had to be better than their two apprentices. So I made myself very available to anybody that wanted help. And I worked really hard. And then after six months, they fired the other apprentice. And kept was his name Raymond? Yeah, his name was Raymond, yeah. <laughs> Poor Raymond. He didn't know that he was up against the force of nature. So, Nick, you said you've been working for 50 years. Okay, so <laughs> considering that we have a time limit on the podcast, and if we go through your life, we're probably going to get about five years into that by the end of the podcast. So can you give us just an overview? What are the main places you've worked and things that, like you've mentioned to me that you started off at the cathedral and then that you at a certain point did classical carving. I know you've been to Egypt. Your website is just a... <laughs> oh, the resume goes on and on. It's <laughs> amazing. It's on and on. So can you just give us like an overview of what, everything you've done and maybe then we can drill down into a few areas? Well, I guess I started off with a banker mason and then, um, you know, another banker mason, you I'd say this, you really obsess over line and surface. And then I wanted to be a carver. So I managed to get a job. I won't give the long story at Westminster Abbey where we were working on the North Front Henry VII Chapel, all 13th and sort of 15th century, late 14th, 15th century work. And there as a carver, I remember the first day there they told, and there was a much, you know, was a much larger um, production. They had like about 100 men on site, maybe a few more. And they had like 25 banker masons, you know, um, they had some, another team of guys working on the cloisters, but, you know, we were doing the, basically start with the North Front. And the stone was Portland, which was a very hard stone. And you're all working by hand. And, you know, so I went there carving, sort of stiff leaf carving. I was basically car uh, a gargoyle and foliage carver. And I remember them saying to me, you know, well, you know, as a banker mason, you like, you know, you obsess over line and surface. But as a stone carver, you deal with form, color, line, speed of line. And the surface is something you arrive at. So, you know, so that type of, you know, that, so it's much, you know, it's, you know, it's very good for me to be in a shop. Because I felt that as a banker mason, I got to the sort of apex and I couldn't get any further. So doing carving, you know, working in a shop where all of a sudden this whole world of carving opened up to me. And then there was one carver there, a guy called Arthur Ayres, who was quite a well-known well carver. And, an, and his assistant, and he was carving around 20 statues, one after the other. It would just go, go and talk to him every lunch break, any moment I could, see what he was doing, and kind of, you know, picked up a lot from him and as much as I could. You know, it's a big difference there when you're working on a building when you can go up to actually like a 13th century statue and actually look at it on the scaffold. And look at the detail. Um, you know, it really does help. And then, like again later, I remember I was when I was working at um, um, English Heritage um, Department of the Environment. They had like they brought some statues in by a guy called Bushnell that were carved of like you know Charles the First. They were carved for a temple bar for um, an Indigo Jones building. I remember looking at those and thinking, oh my, it's so fascinating seeing all his detail and how it was so Baroque. And this uh, this was a guy who brought sort of Baroque carving to England and had worked in, he was English, but had worked in Italy. And you could see all of the Italian, um, you know, stuff that he had added on. And everything before that was sort of, you know, didn't have that. So it was really fascinating being able to, you know, look at old carvings. And the reason I was at English Heritage, because I, most of my life, I just worked on Gothic up to that point. I wanted to work somewhere where I could learn more about classical carving. So because English Heritage oversees all of the stately homes, um, you know, so we, you know, we'd work on, you know, Chiswick House, um, or, uh, you know, buildings like, you know, classical buildings, Apsley House, um, you know, doing, you know, uh, 
printing and capital for them and stuff. So it was really great for you know from my education to work with guys who were mainly classical carvers. And just to kind of so you started when you were sixteen. About how old were you when you got to English heritage? I was probably like in my thirties. Oh, okay. Maybe, so this maybe thirty-five. This is a long. This yeah. is a long, long. Yeah. Process. So you know, because I'd gone from you know Westminster Abbey, I went to art college. I realized, you know, Arthur Ayres, his advice he gave to me was, you need to learn like you need to go and do life drawing. You need to learn to draw. So I went to college to learn to draw and do life modeling because I'd actually carved my first statue on Westminster Abbey and realized how bad it was. Did they put it up anyway? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't that bad. It was bad when I look back, you know. It was, ah, okay. you know, it was just a bit stiff, awkward. I didn't know enough about the figure. It was a good copy, you know. So right. um, going to college and just doing drawing and learning about composition more, learning about life drawing, modeling, yes, sort of opened up the doors. If you, you know, that's, you know, the French in the 17th century copied the Italians and sent all their carvers, you know, they set up a school to have them do life drawing. Mm -hmm. You know, because it, you know, carving is like three-dimensional drawing. So you really, you know, drawing is a, you know, is a, is a very valuable. And as a, now, as a sort of um, artist, you know, if you want to learn, you know, it depends what you want to do as a carver, what type of carving you want to do. Do you want to do, you know, you know, there are letterers, there are people who just do monumental work, there's people who do architectural work, there's figure carvers. What do you want to specialize in? So you really, you know, if you want to do everything, then you've got a big hill to climb. Right. So you know the, you know the learning the tools, at first is is a is a steep curve, but you learn that pretty quick. Learning what to carve takes you the rest of your life. So you know you so you anything you can add to that to make yourself you know a better because do you want to carve other people's designs or do you want to carve your own designs? If you want to carve your own designs, you need to learn composition design and how to draw. Is there anything that you had wished you had found out, learned earlier in the process that looking back through the lens of reflection that you say, you know what, I found that out later than maybe. I yeah, I wish I'd gone to business school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's one thing being a good carver, being a good businessman is something completely different. Okay, so first with the uh, different cathedrals, Gothic, English heritage, classical. What did you do after that? So I happened to be working in with a friend of mine, self-employed, and we were working on some, all these dolphins for the top of the Royal Naval College in Greenwich. It's an amazing building. And this guy walked in and said, oh, my name's Bambridge. I'm the master mason for St. John the Divine. And then, so to cut a long story short, he employed me to go to New York on an endowment of the arts grant to um, teach um, inner city kids who were training to build this cathedral in New York. So then I you know, ended up in New York doing that um, project, training carvers um, to do carving. Most of the carvers were um, banker masons to start with. Which, is, which was kind of a little bit of an advantage for me because I knew that, you know, that was, you know, uh, where I grew out of. So, um, you know, I, tr I spent about four years training there and then I went back to England and uh, worked for English Heritage. Were you there at the same time that uh, Ken Cannon, Joseph Ken Cannon was Yeah, Ken Cannon was... Um, uh, one of the students in my shop. There was actually Joseph and his brother, Jeep. Um, then um, a whole lot of people, Cynthia, a guy, uh, um, African-American, Rubin. And uh, at the beginning, I was actually, um, there were a couple of others. Uh, at the beginning, I was also teaching the banker masons and, as well until they got, um, and I was teaching them geometry until they uh, got a new uh, banker mason 
to come in and teach them from uh, from England. Joseph told us a funny story about how he was in the gift shop, yeah, uh, and had this pretty plush just job sitting in the gift shop, but was desperate to get out there and 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 work in the yard with you guys. Uh, I think he ended up on the saw for a, for a year or so. Yeah, that was before I went there. So what happened to me was I got there and they said, um, uh, we want you to pick uh, four students to start off with to be, um, or you know, four apprentices to be uh, carvers. But Bambridge took me aside and said, don't pick this person, don't pick that person, don't pick that one. Then the dean did the same to me. He said, oh, I want you to pick this person, that person, and this person. <laughs> then they had another guy there who was um, in charge of the administration, and he said, make sure you pick some African-Americans because we need them for publicity. So I said, what am I going to do? So what I did was I set up the rule. I set up, a, I carved a crocket, quite a large one, and had all the people who were interested to come and carve one. So they all came in and sort of carved one. And then I put numbers on them and I wrote their names on the bottom. And then when mm. Dean Bambridge and this other guy, Wally, came in, I told them they had to pick the best ones from the numbers so they didn't know who they were picking. <laughs> and that, so it was like, a, you know, like the lottery. But that was the only way I could thought I could get out of it. That's pretty clever. That is. Did they get their way? Yeah. So they were kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place because they told everybody everybody had a, you know, that everybody had a chance. And then so they picked everybody, and I had them had everybody kind of come in when they said who was going to be in the shop because their names were on the bottom. So it was wow. kind of worked out. That's wonderful. Very cool. Where does Egypt fit into all of this before we, <laughs> before we go on? Egypt was, I was interested in um, doing a dig in, um, so I met this guy actually, um, at the time he was with uh, Chicago University and Mark Lerner, and he was running a dig in, um, in Egypt on the, on the pyramids. And he was actually looking for the, the um, city that everyone lived in who built the pyramids. But I was interested in finding, uh, okay, well, there was a dig done by, uh, um, I think, either Cambridge or um, Oxford way back, and they did this dig where all the ramp to um, Cheops's pyramid was dumped, and they found a load of stone tools and unfinished sort of blocks that were being shaped. But they never recorded anything. So I wanted to do a dig there to see whether any more of that could be found. But I don't have any archaeological experience. So he said, why don't you come along to the dig? And we, I, wanna, I want you to look over all the ruins and see if you can give me any evidence of um, construction things, mm -hmm. so, of how things were constructed. So I went and I was, the first year I went, I was involved in a dig on the um, backside of Kefren's Pyramid where Reisner said that there were these long walls and he said they were, you know, this is where the people who built the pyramids lived. So we did a random dig there and realized these were storerooms. They weren't, you know, they were storerooms for the priests. Hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, it was a, and we kind of, I think most people knew that, but it, so it was just to prove that. But it gave me some experience on a dig. And then me and Mark, and often me by myself, I had a great piece of paper that, that you know, because they had all these taftish sort of police that stop you from doing stuff, that I could go and climb up anything, go over anything by showing this piece of paper. So, I, you know, I'd climb over stuff and, you know, you, you know, you would notice, say, on the pyramid, on a lot of the pyramids where the casings collapsed, there'd be peg holes at the end to run a piece of string. And there were like sort of little things, you know, construction things. There'd be a sort of gash in the pyramid, which would show you the center line. You know, there were little sort of things like that that nice. I 
sort of going along looking at. But wow. that was about it. So I went back and I went there like a couple of times until the whole dig got shut down. All the digs got shut down. Um, trouble. Wow. What an awesome experience. Oh, it was very interesting. What was, what was even more fascinating, we went out to Hell One, which is named correctly. It was Hell. It was completely hot. <laughs> no trees. It's the desert. But they pulled back. You know, that's the reason why the pyramids are in the desert, is because if you pull back the sand, there's solid limestone. So that's your so that's your foundation. You don't need a foundation. Got it. Um, and then they dig down, you know, and do tombs. But Helwan is where all the Torah limestone that the casing for the pyramids, because the stone at Giza is very kind of soft. The Helwan stone is really fine and a, a little bit more durable. So it's about twenty miles from Giza. So they kind of, um, you know, shipped it over there, whether by barges. They had actually a a um, they built uh, uh, a canal up to the um, pyramids to float stone, which you know, which is you know, so they would take the granite from you know way down in you know uh, southern Egypt, all that granite, and they would float it all the way up to um, um, you know Giza for the granite, you know, for the for the tomb, you know, for the for like cheap, you know, for the ceiling on the walls of Cheops. They had blocks there were forty tons wow. that they put in place. And so the 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 skin or the veneer. Yes. How thick that it, was bolted later. That so that was taken and probably reused for other That was yeah, taken later to build the city walls. Got it. And actually if you go into one, there's a quite a good mosque you can go in. I can't forget the name of it. And if you go in it, they reused all the pharaonic columns from some temple there in Giza. Uh, you know well, they were they were very good at reusing stuff. Is I I've heard that that's what the, why the Colosseum looks the way it, it does is because they started quarrying the Colosseum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah that, that's a good way to put it. Quarrying the quarrying the building. Yeah. So that when was that? I didn't even know about that. Back in the eighties, sometime. I don't know how eighties. Did y'all find evidence of a, of a stone yard or tools? Did you ever find? No, we didn't. We didn't get that far because that was the year after that. We were. It was all shut down. No one could do any digs. All the British, all the, you know, American site was shut down, and um, it was all taken over by Doctor Zahi. Got it. And I can go. You know, you can go on for it forever, but I'll try not to. Yeah. So how'd you come to Ohio? Because I was working in California and I was doing a lot of work for the governor's mansion in Salt Lake City and a lot of rich houses there in San Francisco. And then the dot-com crash came and everything kind of dried up. So I, had, I managed to get this big job carving for Atlanta, actually, carving all these large Corinthian capitals. And they were all like, sort of four foot tall, so they're pretty big. And, you know, the stone's all out here, really. And, I, and a mill out here, Cleveland Quarries actually, offered me a space to do it there. So I came up just to do that job and ended up getting stuck here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also in Ohio, so... Really? Oh, okay. uh, d- d- don't badmouth the Buckeye State too much. Just right, kidding, right. Just kidding. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, you've you've told me a little bit a long time ago actually about why it is that you decided to move to the U.S. Can you can you tell me again what it was that made you leave England and move here? <laughs> no, I think um, I think I got very frustrated with um, a lot of bad work being done. For one thing, I won't mention names. There was like a, you know there was you know I I I just really love medieval work. And I'd just be crying when I see someone ruin a bad piece, you know, do a restoration and do bad carving on it, you know. And, you know, I'll give you a very good example. When uh, York Minster caught fire, the roof, and they rebuilt a lot of it, all the, all the medieval roof bosses, which were in wood, some of them they had to, re- quite a few of them they had to replace. And they had a, comp- they had a competition on the B- on some kids program for people to design 
roof bosses for this old 13th century building rather than replace copies of the one that were originally there, mm-hmm. which I just thought was appalling. And I mean, yeah, were they doing a fundraiser? We have better taste. No, I think we have better taste. But you know, I mean, it is what it is. I guess uh, you know, you you have bad taste everywhere. But I, you know, but you know, to um, you know, to uh, I mean, it's like any building. You look at I don't know, I think Durham Cathedral. All the columns were painted. Someone in the nineteenth. 1900s thought it was a great idea to scrub it all off so the columns would look more unified. So, you know, people are doing stuff like that all the time. Mm-hmm. I thought you had said something to me about, maybe I'm making things up, about how you wanted to come to the U.S. because you wanted to be able to make new things. Actually, that's true. So <laughs> I think, you know, like if you probably look back, probably like 20 years ago, we had a quite a good business just doing fireplaces for new homes and we did we just did fireplace after fireplace and that was actually quite fun designing stuff you know a client would say oh i want a fireplace with foliage on it or i want this so that was i mean you know that was great fun so not all the work here in america is restoration there is rest you know there's a lot of restoration but i do love the fact when you get you know when you're able to design something completely new and able to you know um you know, work, you know, out on a project that's, you know, completely brand new. How do you balance your enjoyment or, or your prioritization of those kinds of work? Would you, would you do completely new things all day, every day, if you could? Or do you like a balance? No, I think with stone carving, the good thing about it is every job's usually completely different. You know, you can be carving marble one day, and then the next day you're doing limestone statues. The next day you're doing a fireplace. And I think that is one of the nice things about um, carving. Um, you know, you don't know what you're going to be. You know, you're not working on one building like I was at Westminster Abbey. But so each job is almost completely different. The materials could be different. The type of carving completely different. And, you know, that is an exciting and interesting part of it. I think... You know, as my bad business, we just run from disaster to disaster. We got, at the moment, so much work, you're just trying to get stuff, you're trying to do high quality and get stuff out the door. Because, you know, you can't get, it's very difficult to find, you know, good carvers and the amount of time you have to spend in training people. How, how do you feel about, like, the way that, like, American carvers develop as opposed to the to the yeah I was, structure of the english yeah, system yeah that's um that's a little bit tricky because you know if you work you know for me working say westminster abbey when you literally got 100 people there and you got 20 banker masons you've got like at a, one you had like six carvers it's not your learning curve is much faster it's not the work you're doing it's the work you see other people doing as well so you know i may have never carved a canopy for a statue, but I've seen someone do it, so I know how to do it. Right. So that sort of confidence and that quickness of learning, you know, and you know, and you have all these other these people to go up and talk to. Sure. You know, right. Tell you yeah. stuff. And I think sort of that's a very important thing for me, is that I was told at the very beginning by a carver, whatever I teach you, you need to go and teach somebody else. He said, if you don't do that, the trade will die. And I've worked with other carvers, um, I won't mention which country, but they eat spaghetti, where they they won't tell you anything. And they'll turn their back on you when they're doing stuff so you can't see what they're doing because they don't want you to know how how they're doing a technique. And I think that's wrong, the wrong way to do it. Yeah. Better way is to, I mean, because, you know, once you're a good carver, who's, 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 who's worried about competition, you know? What do I have to, you know, um, you know, if you're confident enough and good enough, then you don't have to worry about competition. So you want to help everybody to learn. You know, if you, it's like this carver told me, look, if you want to, you know, you know if you, I, I used to do wood carving too, and I used to work with wood carvers. And this wood carver said, people have been carving ball and claw feet for like three, four hundred years. It just, all you need is three chisels 
And if someone shows you how to do it, it's bang, 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 bang. Now, you can develop on that, but it's so helpful for you to, you can sit down and work out how they did it, but why reinvent the wheel? Someone just tells you and you can do it and you can knock it out and then maybe you can improve on it. You know, maybe you can change it, modernize it. I don't know. But he said, if, but if someone can just give you that piece of information, then everything falls in place and makes stuff life a lot easier. I think that like the more good carving there is out there, the more demand there will be. Yes, exactly. Good carving. Yeah. Well, that's why everybody thinks of Carrara because you have a location with lots of carvers. So people think, oh, everything's got, everything marble's going to be done in Carrara. Right. And it's the same, you know, if, if you had a location like that here where you had lots of carvers, and again, you know, the sad thing is, you know, in England, you know, like I said, I work, you know, Westminster Abbey, 100 men. I talked to those guys. They would say, oh, after the war, after the bombing in London, you had shops with 400 men in. And okay. not just one shop, lots of shops. The rebuilding of London was massive. All these, all the stone... You know, all the stone carving going on. So the standard was really high. And that's the problem with America is you have shops with one one person working on their own or two people. Right. So you're not getting that learning experience from other people. And in a way, I've been lucky working around in different good shops because, you know, what you learn in one shop where you're just working limestone, but you don't know anything about marble. Right. Then you go work in another shop where people do marble or marble carvers, and you like, wow, I didn't realize that. And then you go work in a shop where people just do sandstone. You learn all these other um, techniques or tricks that they don't do in limestone. So, you know. Can you tell us your idea for the, um, not the workshop, but the thing at the bricklayers with the different kinds of stone and, uh, yeah. Yeah, I was I had this idea about what would be quite good is to, and I was talking to Bethany, you know, about have to write something up to try and get some funding to have a have an idea to promote American stone. Uh, because everybody, you know, half the job they're on, oh, they want French limestone, they want Italian marble. And well, what about American materials? And what about, you know, training that to have some project where you have something like a bus and that third, you know, that's maybe, say, like two foot tall. And you have maybe, you know, you have like 10 different stones from different American quarries. And you carve the same object, the same bust, in all these different materials. And, ha you know, have this, you know, get a, give everybody a stipend. And at the time, I was talking to the Bricklayers Guild and they said they had a facility, you know, where we had the guild meeting in their facility. They said it would be a good idea we could use their facility because they have dorms and a facility for carving. And uh, the idea was really to have like 10 bus, all done in different materials. You know, you could have like, you know, Alabama marble, Indiana limestone, you know, Barry granite. There's, you know, a whole load of, you know, different colors. Alberine soapstone, you know, all these different materials that the same object. And the idea would be to have this as a show. Maybe you'd send, you know, for architects to look at to see American materials and how the object changes in different materials, but also to use it to raise money to get a stipend for the carvers so that you could have people being trained how to carve a bust. Have you been in talks with the Brick organization. Uh, I did. That was a long time ago. It was when. Um, oh, it was when we had the meeting there. We had the meeting there, and I think it was you know um, Matthew Redderbach was involved. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's a great idea. But I think you know promoting carving students, and then promoting American materials, because you know like you just have to look at the um, the American was it the American Stone Institute. Yeah. They built their building in, I think it's in Washington, and they built it out of French limestone. <laughs> it's like, why? <laughs> why? No, they love of an American. They love irony. It's in their mission statement to be ironic. I, I thought it was a really interesting observation what you had said earlier today, actually, about um, about how you learn so much when you have 
lots of people in a studio and um and that right now we don't have anything like oh and that right now most carvers that you meet in the guild were either at saint john the divine or at the washington national cathedral or trained by someone from that and so just the idea that gee it would be great if we had another saint john the divine right now and how could we do that like <laughs> so I, I thought that the workshop was was a really cool idea also when you're working with other people you really have to i mean you get very competitive people get competitive but also you can see how fast you're working compared to other people if you're working on your own you don't know if you're actually slow or fast so when you see other people working and how other and then you may not you may be someone else will approach it differently to you and you'll learn something too you know or you'll learn you know what you're doing wrong or you know, even, you know, I mean, even as old as I am, you can still learn off of, off of, off, you know, off of things, you know, off of people. I thought the system that you described about, um, you were telling me about the English heritage method of getting everybody to stay on time, which was to basically create a bonus that. Oh, no, that was Westminster Abbey. So that oh, was, was that in Westminster Abbey? Yeah, okay. that was really funny. So that was, so this guy locked who was actually Margaret Thatcher's main man um, breaking the unions at Downing Street, which was a big strike. And he got the job afterwards running Westminster Abbey as he was retired, basically. So he was, oh, every you had a union meeting, the union guy would be trembling. You know, and he would sort of, he was great. He was really, I really liked him. He would sit in this chair, because I was a union rep for the Carvers. He would sit in a chair and everyone would have to stand in a line and they couldn't stand on the carpet you had to stand off the carpet and then they the union guy would say like oh yes um we we demand more money for uh cleanup uh going home and um and in the morning and he just wouldn't say anything it was this fantastic pregnant pause and he would just pull his pipe out fill it with tobacco poke the tobacco down then he would sit in his chair and he had this massive window behind him so you're kind of blinded and then he would swivel his chair around and puff on it and then turn back and then the union rep would blurt something stupid out because the pause was so long and then you knew what he had lost you know <laughs> but he devised that they had a bonus plan so every single job whether you're setting a stone on the building cutting stuff out, carving, you know, uh, doing the banker work. Because actually we as carvers got a little more than the banker masons. So all the capitals were already, you know, um, you know uh, uh, masoned. And we just got the carving block and did the carving. So every piece of carving had a time on it. Now, if one person did not make that, so I had a like, so if I had a capital, say I, if I um we had like double caps. We had these capitals that were double caps that go on top of these columns. So one of those would be 14 days to do the carving by hand. If you didn't make four, if you couldn't do it in 14 days, the whole entire hundred men lost their bonus. So oh, wow. if so, the incentive. So basically, you get beaten up. So the incentive to hit your times was really quite clear. No, no pressure. Yeah, and were no, these times? Were these yeah. times? They weren't. They were negotiated at the beginning of the. Yes, like, yes. So they negotiated, and you could go up and say this time's ridiculous. You know, uh -huh. you fell back. But you once you accepted the contract, right? It was like you were once, in. Oh, so, yeah. Once you're, yeah. <laughs> well, you know. So the head carver, they had a head carver. So once the head carver, this guy Charlie Cox, had, um, you know, accepted all the times, oh, then we all had to, we all had to follow, you know. So wow. <laughs> that's pretty intense. Yeah. Why? From oh, a management cool. point of view. It's oh, the, yeah. The funniest one if you did 40 hours, if you did 40, if you didn't come in one minute late, you could work Saturday morning for time and a half. But they had this little scam going where two people would get clocked in and they wouldn't come to work. And then one morning they pulled everybody in the canteen there and said, 
and they read out the roster of who was there that weekend, and they said, was Peter here? Yes. Was Nicholas here? Yes. Was Charlie here? Yes. And they said, everybody says Charlie's here. He's clocked in. Yep. We have to tell you he died on Friday night. (laughs) 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 So they call it that one. (laughs) Did that expose the entire scheme or just that Yes, yes. Oh, no. Yeah. So that was stalled. Yeah. Wow. So Nick, we should wrap up and there are lots of questions that we didn't get to, so hopefully we can we can continue the conversation at some other time. But can you um just give us kind of a snapshot of what does Fair Play Stone Carving Studios look like right now and where do you hope to be taking it in the future? Well we're working on a couple of projects. We have this house in Wyoming that um, is a sort of gothic house and we're doing a lot of uh, spandrels, carved foliage spandrels that you know Bethany's working on and quite a few other people, Brian and people have been working on and that we move on to the next stage on the interior which will be a, a, fi- a large fireplace. I don't know what else is down the road on that project. I've just been doing some drawings for the fireplace and then at the same time I'm working on a project for the Greek Gardens in Martin Luther King Boulevard, which is a relief 15 foot long with 32 figures of Greeks on it, like, um, you know, Plato, Socrates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that's going to be in Indiana limestone in three panels, 60 by 63. What's that? uh, um, Cleveland, um, in Cleveland itself. It's uh, the Hellenistic Society. They have a load of gardens, the English garden, the French garden, you know, et cetera, et cetera. No. And the Italian garden just got done up, so the Greeks won their garden. Done up. <laughs> you know, the, um, the uh, other project, we have a, um, an altarpiece we're doing for a church in Indiana. In um, Indiana, um, I can't remember where. That's We're just finishing up. And then there's just some other stuff down the pipeline, you know, some more foliage carving for a house and other stuff I've feared that we're waiting on. So I don't know where's, what's down the road. We'll just wait and see, really. <laughs> but it'd be nice to get on and do some of, you know, some of our, my own work so I can get some time. So we'll see. Well, you know, we've, we definitely want to have you back. We we appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us today. This is good. It's your story is so interesting. I want I would like to just spend an hour talking about Egypt and and that whole yeah uh, exploration of things. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Nick, and and okay. thank you, Bethany, for arranging the. So hey, guild meeting things. guild meeting to Egypt. <laughs> hey, yeah, no, there you go. Yeah, that's a lot more fun than a Zoom call. We just need to get the grant. <laughs> right. Yep, yeah. Well, hopefully lots of people will listen to the podcast and sign up for the Guild, and then we'll have lots of participants for stuff like that. That's right. You've been listening to the Stone Carvers Guild podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and we hope that you will find us online at stonecarversguild.org. There you can find photos showing some of the things that we discussed today, additional information about our guest, and if you're so inclined, ways to get more involved with the Guild and our ongoing activities. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, we hope that you will subscribe and rate us on the podcaster of your choice. Five stars, please. We'll be back in a month with a new episode. So until then, keep your hammer up and your chisel sharp. <laughs>